We will be in this morning, Romans chapter 6. Before I read that text, let's join our hearts together in prayer that God would bless this hour for his worship and our edification. Our great God in heaven, it would be our desire as believers that come under your grace, under the blood shed by your Son on our behalf, that we come praising you and declaring to you, Father, let it be your will that is done in our lives and not our own. This would be our testimony and our humble recognition before you that you are a great God that ministers to your people. You care for your flock. You provide what is needed. And as we turn our attention this morning to your written word, to your church, we pray that our souls will be nourished together. Grant me the ability to speak clearly and well on the things before us. But Father, would you move in our hearts and our minds to take, to receive, and to apply these things so that we leave this place better prepared to walk in the likeness of your Son. Give us that disposition, that attitude this morning. I pray also for any here this morning that may be listening to these words that are unsaved and yet without Christ. That, Father, you would do the work of faith that only you can do, opening the heart to receive Christ, leading such a one to your Son. Because your word says, none come to Christ unless you draw them. So use this hour for your glory, both for your church and for those that are yet to be part of your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 6, beginning verse 11. <clears throat> you can follow along as I read. Romans 6, beginning verse 11. Even so, Paul writes, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. Last week in our study of Romans chapter 6, we were challenged with the reality that our lives in Christ are new, and therefore our identity is new. And this is a central theme to justification by faith. We are no longer under Adam, as Romans 5 says. We are now under Christ. We are now in Christ. And as the last verse of chapter 5 says, we are now under the reign of God's saving grace through righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ alone. That gives us a whole new identity. I was looking in the nose, and some of you may have seen this in the news just this week. Another pastor has fallen, and I hate to see these reports because I'm in this trade myself, but the idea of being a pastor means that you are a shepherd to the gospel of Jesus Christ to those in the flock of God, and this particular man who is a pastor was also the mayor of a small town in the Midwest, so he has a, a, a prominent position but apparently this man was caught in an online site of some sort wearing his wife's clothes and her underclothes and there are other things of a sexual nature that was involved and apparently he thought this wouldn't be found out yet he posted himself online and when an article was written about this man's behavior he had to stand before his congregation admit that he had become an object of an internet attack. Rather than saying, I've been exposed in sin, he says, I've been an object 
of an internet attack. But oddly, when he stood in the pulpit of his church and attempted to defend himself, this is what he said, and this is a quote. What I do in private life has nothing to do with what I do in my holy life. What I do in my private life has nothing to do with what I do in my holy life. Number one, I don't know what is private about putting yourself on the internet that way. But number two, what he said about his private and his holy life, you can see has nothing to do with what Paul is writing in Romans 6. Entirely antithetical. And it astounds me that a Baptist, so-called pastor, would make such a statement. He then told his congregation that in regard to the article that exposed his conduct, this article is not who or what I am. Sadly, this is a man that does not understand his identity in Christ because it necessarily gives to us a very different view of sin and righteousness. And this is what Paul is teaching the church here in Romans chapter 6. We have now come to the last part of the first half of Romans 6, where Paul puts out a call to believers now to respond as those who have been made alive in Christ. And to get the imagery of you and I as believers being baptized into Christ is such a vivid picture. We have been immersed, Paul says, into his death, meaning the old man of sin has died. And we have been immersed also in the resurrection of Christ. In other words, we've been raised in newness of life to walk in newness of life, to walk in the likeness of Christ. This is what Paul has been teaching the church. And then we come to verse 11 where Paul says this demands a response of us. You need to to reconcile this, consider this, reason this out in your minds as believers that we now in Christ are dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. And that brings us to this question. What are we to reason out here? What are we called to consider? What are we standing in approval of as those that are under the grace of God or the reign of grace, as verse 21 says in chapter 5? We are under the reign of grace through righteousness. When we come to verse 12, Paul starts in his familiar fashion with the word therefore. He anticipates that believers know what it means to be justified by God and will respond as a justified people. What follows this is a description of what the resurrection means to the believer, both Christ's resurrection and our resurrection in Christ because we are now made in union with Christ to be one with his resurrection. In verses 12, 13, and 14, there are two negative commands and two positive commands given to a people who are now under God's reign of grace. And within these commands, verse 13 uses the word present, or present yourself. We're to present ourselves in a way that we have been recreated to be and to act in Christ Jesus. And that word present means to yield your will, yield our will. Because that is what we're now able to do as those raised in Christ. Paul is calling Christians to yield their will regarding sin and regarding righteousness. It is often said that chapter 12 in Romans marks the beginning of a new section. 
It's the practical section of Paul's letter. So 11 chapters of doctrine, then starting in chapter 12, there's practical application. But I want you to notice here in chapter 6, beginning verse 12, there is practical application. Paul does not wait to the finish line. He has something to say to us in regard to certain realities of our Christian faith. And this will be the focus of our study this morning, the application of what we are reborn to be in Jesus Christ. This is a call to yield our will to our new identity in Christ. To yield our will to our new identity in Christ. And there are three things that we're called to consider here in these three verses, beginning with a call to recognize, a call to recognize certain realities. And I pick up again on that word, therefore. Paul has just spent 11 verses describing our union with Christ and what that means. Therefore, he anticipates we're going to recognize certain realities of what he's just taught us. In this case, what has been taught in verse 1 to 11 should cause us to recognize certain truths pertaining to the relationship believers have, again, with sin and righteousness. The call that this passage makes towards all believers, beckoning all of us as believers, begins with the recognition that we are still, number one, able to sin. Now, this is not news to any true believer here this morning. It was not news to the Roman church either. The call to recognize our ongoing ability to sin is still very necessary. So Paul wants us to be aware of that. With the connecting word therefore in mind and in our text, let's consider some of the implications this has to our study of Romans 6. The word therefore. What are the implications? Number one, recognize that doctrine leads to practice. What we know translates into what we do. Doctrine must, of necessity, lead to practice. Another way to say this is that doctrine is the foundation of our sanctification. So Paul's not waiting till chapter 12. He's going to get into some sanctification right now. And as already pointed out in verses 12 to 14, Paul calls the church to apply what he's been teaching on, ver, on, on our behavior, on our walk with Christ, he's calling us to consider this in our relationship to sin and righteousness because true believers are united with Christ both in his death and his resurrection. Verse 11 concludes by saying, now I want you to reason this out. Because of all of this, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to Christ, uh, God in Christ Jesus. And if this is our new identity, then the doctrine of our union with Christ compels us, therefore, to act and to live in a certain way, which is exactly what verse 12 and 13 are going to do for us. When it comes to doctrine, there are those that prefer to not get all that involved and get all that wrapped up in all the intricacies of doctrine. I, and I've heard this said before, I don't want to get all that wrapped up in doctrine, I just want to love Jesus and live for Jesus. Well, if you're going to love Jesus and live for Jesus, Paul is saying you need to know the doctrine. You need to know doctrine. Others are going to make a big deal out of doctrine and they push it heavily without the practice so much. And we've all seen those in the church as well. So you have these two ends of the spectrum when it comes to doctrine. Paul is going to put this into perspective for us. 
I think we have all seen, in fact, I was recalling many years ago, back in the early 2000s, we had a couple of couples come to the church that pushed heavy doctrine, doctrine that we agree with. And they came to me at one point and said, you know, there's one of the songs you sing that's doctrinally incorrect. And I looked at the song and I had to agree, yes it is, and we made a slight alteration to the song so that what we were singing to God was appropriate. But what's interesting is that those folks never did connect with the church's ministry. They eventually left, they got into sin, and they divorced. So doctrine was just a label for them. And this is where we want to get beyond wearing doctrine as a mere label. We have people that come in and want to correct our doctrine, but are they living that doctrine? And sometimes we can use doctrine, uh, we learn it, we speak it, and we kind of set up doctrinal camps for ourselves. And very often when we set up our camp in a certain doctrinal field, we like to join ourselves with what I think of as doctrinal celebrities. The big names, well, I'm an Arminian, well, I'm a Calvinist, well, I like John MacArthur, well, I like John Piper. They did the same thing in the early church, right? Paul dealt with this in church in Corinth. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said there are some that are siding with Paul, some are siding with Apollos. But Paul pointed out, look, we're just workers in the fields of God's ministry. He's the one that causes the increase. Some like to go around just correcting doctrine. It is not wrong to identify ourselves with doctrine, but it cannot stop there, and that is not the purpose for it. Doctrine is meant to be practiced or to teach us how to live in Christ or how to deal with sin or how to serve the kingdom of God or how to worship the king of that kingdom or how to lead others to become disciples of that king. Just claiming doctrine or who we line up with in that doctrine is not enough. This was clearly a problem even in the early church. So let's together understand what doctrine is intended to do. It is the foundation for our sanctification. Doctrine is meant to be practiced. I'll just give you an example. Jesus teaches us, I want you to love like me. John 13, right? A new commandment I give to you. That you love each other, like what? As I have loved you. What is the doctrine there? It's the doctrine of the atonement. How are we supposed to love? It is foundationed on the atonement. If you want to know how to love, look at the cross. That's what Jesus was saying. Love as I love. And then he went to the cross to show us how he loved us. No greater love has a man than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. And God says, I demonstrated my love for you and that while you were yet sinners, Christ, my son, died for you. That's an example of doctrine and how it affects our walk of faith. Romans 6 shows us, as do most of the New Testament letters, the doctrines of the Christian faith. As you look at the letters in the New Testament, generally the first part is doctrinal and the second half of the letter, it is practical. It is telling us truth and then saying, this is how you live that truth. That's exactly what Paul is doing here in verse 12 and 13 when he says, therefore, I've told you something about doctrine. I've told you about justification by faith. In fact, I've taken five and a half chapters to talk to you about the doctrine of justification. Therefore, this is what you're to do with that doctrine. Second, 
not only is doctrine teaching us how to walk in Christ, but recognize the reality of sin's presence. And again, this does not take us by surprise. But the language that Paul uses here is also a reality we have to recognize in ourselves, that of the presence of sin and the possibility even of sin ruling or reigning in our lives. And he writes that we are not to let sin reign. This implies that Christians can still give a significant kind of ruling position to sin in our lives. Perhaps that would be in reference to habitual sin or sins that we continue to do in habit. Or perhaps being regularly indifferent to sin. I don't pay attention to the little ones. I just focus on the big ones. Or even paying attention to the battle that we're supposed to have in sin. Some don't face every morning as a battle for sin. Or thinking that grace is just going to cover everything. This is the thing that Paul is dealing with in chapter 6. It starts out the chapter, verse 1, and saying so. In verse 15, it's going to say the same thing. Because we're under grace, does that mean we minimize sin? Paul says, heaven forbid. These are things that a Christian must recognize, but they come from the recognition that our mortal bodies are still active in and practicing or desiring the practice of sin. It's essential for Christians to know that sin is still, sin is still there. It's still present. And the very purpose of chapter 6 is to argue against a believer having a casual attitude towards sin on account of grace. Now, in our previous study, we've seen from verse 6 that the old self who was enslaved to sin has died, was buried. And so Paul says, the old man is freed from sin. It's done. That person was crucified and laid in the grave. We are no longer enslaved to sin. But here Paul makes it a bit clearer for us to understand, but that body of sin is still there. We talked about that a week or two ago. The body of sin, verse 6, is still present, still active, still at work. Paul clarifies that for us now in this present text, verse 12, when he references our mortal body. That's not a reference to our spiritual body, is it? Because the spiritual body is immortal. It is the physical body that he's referencing when he says your mortal body. So the body of sin, verse 6, and now verse 12, the mortal body is identifying our physical, temporal body and within our mortal physical bodies are the fleshly desires and impulses that will lure us into sinful practice. What Paul does in giving us these directives on sin is that he lets us know that sin is still a problem that must be dealt with. Each day, a believer must begin the day by suiting up with the armor of God and recognizing, today I'm going out to battle. I will be battling sin in my own flesh. We're not to be the kind of Christian that waltzes through life oblivious to sin with the thought that, well, grace is just going to cover everything. So it doesn't matter so much. We're to recognize that sin can still rule in a believer's life so long as they are still walking around in these mortal bodies of flesh. The language that Paul uses is rather strange and almost seems like a contradiction to his previous statement on believers being freed from sin's enslavement. That's what we've saw, seen in the previous verses. 
But now listen to his wording. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Well, weren't we just set free? Isn't that what Paul was just saying? So it almost seems like a contradiction. Now he's warning Christians against this reigning sin in our lives. How do we reconcile this seeming conflict? Well, I would suggest we embrace them both. We embrace them both. Our spirit, the person we are, is no longer a slave to sin. That old self, again, crucified, laid in the grave, he is no more. We have been made spiritually alive where before faith in Christ, we were spiritually dead. So the spirit is alive. And because of it, we are no longer captive to sin. We're no longer under the judgment or the power of sin. We no longer have to succumb to sin. We have been freed from that slavery. At the same time, in our fleshly bodies, sin is still present and it can bring us much harm. Paul writes in verse 7 that when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, the old self died, is freed from sin, referring to the spirit of the believer, the person we actually are. But in verse 12, he warns that sin is still left in our mortal bodies of flesh. Sin can no longer reign over our spirit, but it will still torment and tempt the flesh and can settle in for a lengthy stay unless we recognize its reality and we battle against its influence over our bodies. Now, on the back of your note sheet, I want you to note the quote that I put in there from Charles Hodge, the American theologian. It's very relevant here. He writes, on this text from Romans 6, verse 12, sin, although mortified in the believer, is not destroyed. That's what we're recognizing here. Its power to injure remains after its dominion is overthrown. The exhortation is, referring to Paul's statement, the exhortation is that we should not yield to this dethroned adversary of Christ and the soul, but strenuously strive against its efforts to gain ascendancy over us and bring us again into its bondage. He makes this very clear, doesn't he? At the very least, we are to take our ability to sin in the flesh seriously. This is what Paul is warning of here in verse 12 and 13. And this brings us, secondly, to a call to respond. We must recognize. That's why the word therefore is there. He's given 11 verses explaining this, this union with Christ. Therefore, keep this in mind. Sin is still there. It can still harm us. But what I've taught you on the doctrine of justification is now to be practiced. So we're going to get into the practical. We're going to get into the practice, verse 12 and 13. This is a call for us to respond in our walk of faith. As already mentioned, Paul's doctrinal presentation of the reign of God's grace through righteousness carries into an 11-verse description of our union with Christ in chapter 6. Paul now makes the argument that this doctrinal understanding of our union with Christ demands a sanctifying response from believers. And there are four directives given to us here. Two are negative, warning what believers are not to do, and two are positive, requiring believers now walk in this way, live this way. In both the negative and the positive, as Paul noted before, he uses the word present. Present yourself. Yield yourself. 
in these areas. And this highlights the change that has taken place in those who by faith in Christ have died to sin's enslavement and are raised now in the likeness of Christ. Where prior to faith, sinners were held captive to sin. Now the believer is able to respond to the call of God. Paul is giving us instruction here of things we could not do before Christ, but now in Christ we can. And I want to put before you Martin Lloyd-Jones' words, his thoughts on this, which is helpful to us as we move ahead. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, these words that Paul has put down are addressed to our will. He's speaking to our will now. This is something that we are told to do, something therefore that we can do. This is important for us. What Paul is telling us in verse 12 and 13, what he's commanding us, what the Spirit of Christ is commanding us, we are now able to do. He's talking to my will and telling us this is what we should do because this is what we can do in Christ. So as we look at the four directives in both the negative and positive application of God's reign of grace, it is our will that is being instructed because our will has been made alive and is activated through the imputed righteousness of Christ. We begin, as Paul does then, with the negative. The negative response. Our will is to respond in this way. Here Paul speaks about no longer Yielding to the urges, verse 12. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul describes the day when Jesus Christ is going to return and he's going to call out of the grave all of those bodies that belong to those that have died in Christ. We know that when we die in Christ, as scripture says, our spirit immediately goes to be in the presence of the Lord. But the body is laid in the grave. Christ is coming back, as the scripture promises, and he's calling that body out of the grave. But what's going to go out of the grave is not the same that went into the grave. Paul says what went into the grave was a perishable body. Christ is going to raise something that will not die again. It will be imperishable. What went into the grave died in dishonor. It's going to be raised up in glory. It died in weakness. It is raised in power. It died a natural fleshly body. It will not be raised a natural fleshly body. A spiritual body. I don't even know what that means entirely. But it's going to be different. But then Paul adds an interesting statement. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 5. He says this. Now I say this, brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Let me read that again. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What is keeping you from heaven's glory right now? It's this body, isn't it? We cannot inherit the prize. We cannot claim the glory of heaven until this body is done with. Paul is declaring something important about the fleshly mortal temple body that carries us around in this life and in this world. Paul adds to that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, and you can follow along in your scriptures. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul writes, for our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we're heading. That's where we belong. And one day we're going to gather there. 
from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What Paul is saying is there is we belong in heaven, but we're not going to get there so long as we're in this body. This body will one day be changed. It'll be transformed into likeness of his glory. What the Lord has already done to raise our spirit up in the likeness of Christ, he is also going to do to our mortal bodies of flesh. But until then, until then, we are to make full use of the enabling grace of God to refuse the sinful desires of our mortal bodies. Two things are said here in a negative context. Number one, do not obey the lust of our flesh. We're not to let sin take over, reigning over that which Christ has purified. We're not to obey the lust that exists within our fleshly bodies. Leon Morris writes, sin, this is not going to be on the screen, sin is still a force, he writes, but Paul's point is that it's not supreme. Sin is still a powerful fo force, but it is not supreme over a life. So we can say no. I will not obey the lust of our flesh. From within our, from within our flesh, there's lusty desires, there's longings for what is forbidden by God. We're not to yield ourselves to these lusts. We're not to obey what our flesh is going to compel us to do. And in Christ, we are spiritually alive to be able to say no to those desires. Second, Paul writes, don't yield your body's members to unrighteousness. He's focusing again on the physical body. What are the members? Each part of our physical makeup. The flesh is going to lust after things that are offensive to God and will entice us to yield the different parts of our bodies to commit acts of unrighteousness. Think about our minds. We can think of things in such a way that we're enticed to do things contrary to God's law. Our minds plot and navigate in and out of these sinful desires. Our minds lust for things that we could not or should not have. Our tongues, they speak about things that are sinful, harmful, hurtful, or perverse. We lie to hide things, to deny the truth, to gain fortunes, to keep ourselves from being caught or being discovered or being dis exposed. James describes our tongue as a fire. He says it's the very world of iniquity. And it is set among our members, the tongue is, as that which defiles the entire body. Our hands, our feet, these also are members that we are not to yield to the works of unrighteousness. Our hands and feet take, uh, take us to places of evil, practice wicked actions against others. They commit theft, murder, and sensual perversions. Our eyes, our ears, they receive things that are unholy or unprofitable, destructive, or give information that we can use against another person. Our eyes and ears are, are like receptors that transmit conspiracies against the things of Christ, wicked things that inspire us to commit further acts of sin, like adultery, impure sexual practices, stealing, or, or thieving. They provide a corrupt mind with information that fuels our desire to sin even further. And while the body owns these kinds of corruptions, the Spirit of God shows us through this passage that we are no longer slaves to these things. Our spirit has been renewed and is activated so that we don't need to yield to the members of our body that desire things that we should not do. 
Leon Morris continues to write of this spirit-empowered believer, and this can come up on the screen. The yielding Christian, the yielding Christian, he must now give up thinking and living like a slave and start behaving like a free person. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Stop living like a slave because you've been set free. Don't let the body take you there again. So those are the negative injunctions appealing to the will that can now respond and say no to that. No to this. I will not allow my body to be engaged in these things. On the positive side, Paul writes how we should respond to the impulses of the flesh. Continuing on in verse 13. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Two things here. And the first, we're going to develop that a little bit further in our conclusion. Yield yourself to God. Yield yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead. Notice how Paul frames this positive exhortation. Yield yourself to God. This is much different than simply making moral changes in your life. When we yield ourselves to God, our motives are pure and they are right. We are desiring to do what pleases him. We're conforming our will to God's will because now in Christ we can. What pleases him? Not simply making ourselves a better moral specimen. This is the difference between moralism and obedience. And what is implied in verse 13 is the difference between one who has been made spiritually alive and one who remains dead in their sins. The moralist makes changes out of self-love. Not out of surrendering to God's will, out of self-love. He sees himself or herself as righteous. They want others to see themselves as righteous, highly spiritual, and a very godly person. They seek the praises of men. And typically, they add more rules that they conform to beyond what God and his word has given us. They create their own ethics, their own holiness standard. And they expect not only themselves to be seen as magnificent because of those standards, but they expect you to live by them as well. But the one who yields to God finds his righteousness sufficient. He is motivated by a heart that wants to please God and desires to conform to God's will and not their own. This person surrenders self-interest in favor of the interests of Christ. And he will exhibit self-denial rather than self-promotion because this is the call of the Savior, and we know it well. If anyone wishes to follow me, Jesus said, what's the first thing? Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. That's exactly what Paul is saying when he says, yield yourself, present yourself to God as one that had been made alive and is no longer dead. If anyone wishes to come after me, deny yourself. You're not promoting self. You're denying self. Take him cross and following him, following Christ. Yielding ourselves to God is the practice of self-denial and conformity to Christ. It is living for the pleasure of the Lord, humbly submitting to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and adding no other. A believer who is motivated by the will of the Lord will be moved 
to obey the will of the Lord. Such a person is a true believer who's come to life from spiritual death. Secondly, Paul says, yield yourself not only to God, but yield your members now. He's going to address that physical body again. Your members as instruments of what? Righteousness. Righteousness. The spiritually alive believer will not only yield their will to the will of God, but they're going to present their body in such a way that is surrendering to the will of God. And this takes the Christian to a place beyond just a a negative command. Paul doesn't stop at saying, don't do this and don't do that. You are to do this. They not only will use the members of their body, not for evil, but they're not a neutral creature here. They're now going to be a creature of righteousness. Paul does not stop at saying, don't do the unrighteous and feel content with yourself. He wants you to engage your body in that which is righteous according to the will of God. The mind, therefore, will be given over to the meditations from God's word, to prayer with the Lord, conversing with the Lord, and in thinking of contemplating ways that they can actively involve their bodies to serve the Lord. It's a heart and mind that wants to grow in their love for Christ. It considers how their life can best please him. It's a mind that is taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our tongues used for encouragement, exhortation, speaking the truth of God in love to others. The tongue in James chapter 3 no longer defiles the whole body. It now speaks the wisdom that is from heaven. According to, again, James chapter 3, it corrects error. It speaks against every lofty thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, and therefore it is a tongue that is corrective at times. The believer who is yielded to God is going to surrender the hands and feet to serve the Lord, the kingdom of the Lord, and the people of God. It's now serving hands. They're going to fulfill the calling that God assigned to active service of Christian husbands and wives and mothers and fathers. It's going to find church men and church women committed to serving with the gifts and the abilities that God's will has appointed to us to be used. A passage I love on this is Ephesians 4, verse 16. And listen to the words of Paul as he uses the image of the human body to speak about what our individual members should be doing. Our minds, our hands, our feet, our hearts, our eyes and ears. Paul says the whole body, giving us an image of the church, the whole body is fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. That every joint is every person that has been gifted by God to use that gift. We are those joints. According to the proper working of each individual part, that again is us, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In that passage, you can visualize every part of our mortal bodies, our physical bodies, being used to provide growth to the body of Christ, the church. And we're used in differing ways. We're we're individual parts, different joints, doing this and that. In this passage, you visualize that, that our hands and feet are now doing something righteous rather than unrighteousness. The hands, feet, our voices, our energies, our minds. The eyes and ears also, no longer receptors of unrighteousness. They're used to take the goodness of God into the church. They read and hear the voice of the Lord from Scripture and biblical teaching. We're receiving different things and producing different things because of it. They observe needs and hurts, our eyes and ears do. 
And they can minister to those that are hurting by God's mercy. They also see and hear spiritual dangers to the flock and will direct hands and hearts and minds and voices to protect and shelter those under attack. I was thinking of an example on this in my own life. But years ago, mid-90s, when I was building houses, working for a local contractor, Della's husband, I took a few months off to go to Oregon and build my dad's house. We put the trusses on, and I was up on the walls cutting rafter tails. So I had my skill saw in my left hand, cutting the tails, holding onto the rafters with my right. And I would stand up and move to the next rafter tail to cut. And as I stood up between those two rafter tails, I sensed that the cord of the saw was going into the blade. So without looking, I swiped that cord away, and I just heard this zing. And it was that sound, and I lifted my hand, and there's my middle finger, like a banana peel falling either way. And what's the first thought that comes to my mind? Uh-oh. That's what I thought. I thought, uh-oh. The second thought is I got angry, and I got angry at my saw, and I threw it to the ground. And I saw it tumbling on the ground, which was my favorite saw. And again, what did I think? Uh-oh. <laughs> Your ears, you hear that zing, the sound of a flopping finger, and you know something's wrong. And in that particular case, my ears and my eyes, they saw the danger after the fact. But sometimes that happens in our walk, too. After the fact, after we've failed, the spiritual senses come alive and we realize, I've done something wrong, uh-oh. And it brings us back into the obedience of Christ. But sometimes those ears and eyes see danger and keep us from going places that are going to bring us harm. This is what Paul's talking about. Use your members for righteousness. It's productive, it's positive, it's active. We are not neutral Christians here, and I want you to note this. Paul gives no room for neutral believers who merely resist evil and keep themselves in quiet, spiritual, holy seclusion. We're not Protestant monks. We're to be activated in the things of God. We say no to unrighteousness, but we engage ourselves in the will of God. Know what God's will is. We yield to him first, and we give our members to doing what is right before him. We're not alive and napping, in other words. Our members are now activated as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, to do the will of God. We know his will, and we do it. And this brings us to verse 14, a call to resolve. Verse 14 is written as a call to resolve in our hearts and minds the realities of our union with Christ. And the idea here is that believers are to make a firm decision regarding their identity and calling. We're to take hold of what we are as a people under the gospel of grace. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Notice that word for. Paul is about to explain something to us. I've just told you what you should be doing. Now he's going to explain why. Four is, is, is giving us a reason for conducting ourselves as verse 12 and 13 is directed. And then again in the middle of the verse, another four to confirm what he's just said in the first four. And I want to bring up the, there's about four quotes that I want you to see together as these men describe what verse 14 is telling us to do. First, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it is encouragement to do what Paul has already been commanding us to do. Verse 14 is an encouragement. Do what I've been telling you to do. Robert Haldane calls this unqualified affirmation. 
Charles Hodge, it is a joyful confidence which the apostle here expresses. But I love John Murray. This is a statement of assured fact. A statement of assured fact. I would add to that a statement of assured facts, plural. What Paul is doing in verse 14 is he's saying to believers, I want you to resolve this. Resolve this. Sin is no longer master over you. And second, you're not under law, but you're under grace. Take hold of this. Confirm this in your minds. It's a statement of assured fact, unqualified affirmation. And the first of these two is to resolve in your hearts and minds, sin is no longer under control. It's not in charge. Sin no longer rules. It's no longer your master. Paul has already established this in the previous verses. But here is restated in the context of believers being called to not yield their physical bodies to sin and its desires, but we are to yield ourselves over to live in righteousness. This is because the spirit of the believer has died to sin. The old self is no more. Sin is not our master. Paul makes a statement of fact here for us that is meant to establish a firm decision about how we use our mortal bodies when we've been risen up with Christ. Sin can never have dominion over us again, not in a spiritual sense. When we were in Adam, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, meaning we were enslaved to sin. Sin ruled our life. But when we came to faith in Christ, God put an end to that. Justification by faith. That dead man died. He is no more. Sin cannot control. It cannot condemn. It cannot bring death to our spirit any longer. It cannot claim us. It cannot hold us by its power. It cannot rob us of eternal life. It can't condemn us anymore. We are to firmly take hold of that statement of truth. For this reason, we also resolve we are not to let sin reign in our bodies. It's because we've resolved this, as 14 says, that we can now fix ourselves to yield to God's way and not to sin's way. Secondly, we resolve that grace does not rule. I'm sorry, grace does rule. Sin does not rule. Grace does rule. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to get that one wrong. So follow my notes. Don't follow my words there. Resolve that grace is now in charge. Now grace rules. We're in the reign of grace. We further resolve that because we're not under law, but under grace, that we now can yield ourselves fully to God and the members of our bodies to his righteousness. There are only two ways to live, Paul is showing us. Notice how he words this. You are not under law, but under grace. There are only two ways for all of humanity to live. They're either under the law or they're under grace. Earlier in chapter 2, you may recall, Paul says the Jews live by the law of Moses. And they tried to save themselves by living that law. But they cannot. That was the point of Paul in the first five chapters. The law isn't going to save you. It wasn't given for that reason. But what about the Gentiles who didn't have the law of Moses? On chapter 2, there was the law that was written on the heart. The law of the conscience. Men are either living by their own law or by the laws of God in order to be saved. Neither can be. That was the point of Paul. We are justified by faith 
alone, in Christ alone, if you're trying to get to heaven, if you're trying to live this life on your own merits, on your own works, it will fail. There are only two ways to live. You can either put yourself under law or under grace. And both the Gentiles' law and the, the, the Jews' law both faced eternity by their own works, their own merits, on their own terms. Some will put a spiritual label on their own works, as did the Jews and every other religion in the world. Or they will live by the laws on their own conscience. But as Paul pointed out so strenuously, the law cannot save because men cannot perfectly keep those laws before God. Even the law given to Israel by God was not intended to save. It was intended to expose sin for what it is and point men to their need of a savior, their need of grace. The point of the cross is that only grace can truly save. Since man cannot live in perfect righteousness before God, the only alternative for sinful man is to cast themselves entirely on the grace of God. The grace of God is that which saves. And that's the point of the gracious work of Calvary. God sent his son into our world to live as one of us in a body of flesh. And in that flesh to take our sin upon himself on the cross. To die on our behalf and rise again in order to deliver sinners completely from the judgment and the bondage of sin. That's the point of the cross. To get us out from under the judgment and the bondage of sin and to place us under grace. Grace declares that Jesus paid it all, that man makes no contribution to his salvation. The sinner can only cast his faith on the one who did everything necessary to rescue us from condemnation and the enslavement of sin. And then to place that, that believer under the reign of grace through righteousness such that sin can never again rule over him. And that under grace, believers are enabled by God to walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ. And for this reason, we are to yield ourselves to God and we yield the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Now, since our focus this morning in verses 12, 13, and 14 is on the practice of believers to live under grace, I would like to provide a summary this morning of thought in regard to practical nature. And some of this will be repeating what I've just said, but they're important truths for us to live by. Here's just a few things that come from our study. Number one, learn doctrine. It's important to learn doctrine, but I want to emphasize to or for the purpose of growing in practice. Learn doctrine to grow in practice. Biblical doctrine should determine our practice. And this may seem like an obvious point, but one that is not always evident in Christian living. Within churches, there can almost be a competitive spirit when it comes to biblical knowledge. We want to more, know more than the other guy. We want to know the bigger biblical terms than the other guy. We want to know our doctrine more than the other person. We want to be recognized for all the doctrine that we know. And very often Christians like to show off their knowledge of doctrine and even pit their doctrinal understanding against others with a different doctrine. Now to be sure, we are to hold to and teach sound doctrine. We are certainly to guard against bad doctrine and even refute it, confront it when it enters the church. But the purpose for sound biblical doctrine is to grow believers in sanctification. 
Doctrine is meant to be applied to our walk of faith. And I want you to listen to the words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. Listen to how Paul admonishes Timothy in his pastoral ministry in the church of Ephesus. Timothy is a young pastor. He's shepherding the, the people in Ephesus. Paul writes to him in pointing out these things. I've been in, he, he's been instructing him on what he should be doing as a pastor. And he says to him in verse 6, chapter 4, 1 Timothy, in pointing these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant. Notice a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. The presence of sound doctrine is activating this man, this pastor in ministry such that his words are nourishing to the body of Christ. They're building up each other as good servants of Christ, which means if they're a good servant, their hands, their eyes, their ears, their, their brain, are being used. the mortal body is being used to do the works of righteousness according to the will of God. Do you see doctrine there? And how it activates not only a pastor of the church, but the congregation as well. Doctrine would form Timothy and the rest of the church into good servants of Christ, serving him through the members of their bodies as instruments of righteousness. And Timothy was commended for his following sound doctrine in his walk of faith and in his ministry to the church. And therefore, as I preach sound doctrine, I need to be learning it. I need to be guided by it. I'm to practice what I preach as well as nourishing you in that proclamation. And together, we're learning how to serve Christ. We're putting our bodies to active use for the glory of God and according to his will. Doctrine is meant to be practiced and lived out in our sanctification. Number two, yield to God first, then to practice. Yield to God first, then to practice. Romans 6.13 teaches us an important truth to live by and to teach others. Yielding to God means we're seeking His pleasure, His purposes, His motives, His glory first and foremost. If we move first to practicing righteousness, it is nothing more than moralism. And many Christians fall into this trap. And I see it Many times in Christian parents, we want our children to be raised right. We want them to be moral little children. So we tell them the do's and the don'ts, and oftentimes the consequences, which aren't bad to know. But we miss an important element if we're not first teaching them the purposes, the glory, and the pleasure of Christ. That's got to be where we begin. Yield to God first. And this is what we should be teaching our children, but as churchmen, as churchwomen, this is what we should be doing with ourselves, yielding to God first. Again, moral conduct is important to Christian living. Our sanctification, it's to be encouraged. But if our members are to be instruments of righteousness to God, to God, then we must first yield ourselves to God. That Paul is describing in the reign of God's grace over his people are lived out in our devotion to his glory, his purposes, and his pleasure. This is where we start. Lord, what can I do that pleases you? I turn to his word and I say, this is what it's telling me to do. I want to do this. 
for your glory and for your honor. This is where yielding our bodies to him must begin. And third, reigning grace practices law. Reigning grace practices law. This is a point that's been covered in the previous studies of this chapter, and Paul is not done preaching it yet. As I said, he started the first half of chapter 6, verse 1, declaring that. But notice in verse 15, Paul again returns right to this subject. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. What do we do with God's law then? Is grace antithetical to law? Paul has been seeing it's just the opposite. Grace enables us to obey the laws of God. This is a point that he's been covering in this chapter, and he's not done with it yet, so the next half of the chapter, we're still going to be in this issue. Grace is not absent of God's law, but actually rules over us through his righteousness. Grace reigns through his righteousness. And as noted before, grace has been badly defined and badly practiced by our modern Christian generation. When Paul says we're not under law but under grace, he does not mean that grace has no laws of its own. Otherwise, verse 13 would make absolutely no sense. We affirm that our obedience to law can never save us, but we must also resolve that God's unmerited favor, his grace, has saved us to obey his laws and to no longer obey the lusts of our mortal, mortal bodies. That's the theme of Romans 6. The first half of this chapter begins by challenging a false understanding of grace, and the second half starts the same way in verse 15. Paul has devoted this chapter to teach the church what it means to live as believers under the reign of grace through God's righteousness, and therefore true gospel grace rules over our practice so that we walk in righteousness and no longer in unrighteousness. Grace does not do away with law. Grace enables us to obey the laws of Christ. Father in heaven, as we look at this amazing chapter written to the church in Rome, we recognize it's written to our church as well. It's written to us. And I pray that as we study these things together, by your good grace, you will teach us, encourage us, exhort us, and build us up in what we are to be as those that are under your grace, recipients of this marvelous salvation that has rescued us not only from the judgment that our sins deserved, but has rescued us from the bondage of sin. Help us to resolve these things and to apply these things in our walk of faith for the glory of our God, for the glory of our God's Son, for the glory of our God's gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.